Amen. So uh, we were in First uh, Timothy and had made it as far as uh, verse 12. So we'll pick up with verse 13. Um, it's important to understand that um, you know we we have um, you know Paul and Timothy who have had this relationship for. Uh, 15 years, and um, now Paul is facing the end of uh, his life. Thank you very much, John. And writing to uh, his student, his disciple, uh, Timothy, and encouraging him uh, with you know these final thoughts and these final days of uh, his life. When he says in verse 13, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And, uh, you know, this opening statement, uh, as far as what we're studying tonight, that hold fast the pattern of sound words, you know, that, that idea of, you know, cling to this, hold on to this, don't let this go. Uh, you, know, you, you might say hold fast to somebody, you know, in a desperate situation to, to hang on to the lifeline. Don't let go of what could preserve you. And um, so much of the church or that which, you know, is considered the church today uh, has abandoned the word of God. They, they don't you know, uh, study the word, they don't teach the word, they don't preach the word. It's uh, something that's an afterthought. It's uh, the, the church, as far as its function, has become a social club in a lot of settings. Um, you know, many, many churches still teach good, solid stuff, but many, many churches have abandoned that and uh, aren't uh, following after the word at all. This, this statement uh, of the pattern of sound words um, has an implication in it that uh, is sort of like a rhythm or a, um, a cadence um, that is understood. And uh, the idea is, you know, it, it sort of be difficult to describe. Like if you, you know, if you're driving down the road and suddenly your motor in your car, you know, one of the cylinders stops firing and, and now you've got that skip that's that's happening. That's sort of what Paul is saying is there's, you know, there's a thing that should happen in you naturally where as soon as you hear preaching, you understand, ah, uh, something's off, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you... You know, or you have a great ease in, oh, you know, I mean, this might be a different, uh, you know, sort of uh, church, a different sort of denomination than what you attend. But you, you, you have that sense of the rhythm of the message is proper. And, and that is part of what he's saying. There's, you have the word of God, and that's very central, uh, but also... You know, there's a pattern. I, um, I'm trying to remember specifically what it was. Um, 
oh, it, it, we were. I was talking to a, a person years ago with, with a group of people, and um, they made mention uh, in it about what happens to us after death, and the way that they responded, I I said, oh, that sounds like you you've been taught by Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, he said, "No, um, you know that, that's just from you know my uh, gospel upbringing because they teach an idea of soul sleep, and uh, it's unbiblical. It's it's not uh, correct. It's not true. And uh, it it was so staunch that I, I stayed on the subject and and pressed with, no, that you know what you're thinking there, what you're saying there, you know, it sounds like you're saying soul sleep. And so we we drilled on that for a little while and and came to discover well in fact uh you know he didn't know that term but what he was describing was in fact that idea that when you pass away you basically are non-existent you're you're asleep you know in is what they would describe as soul sleep until you know it's almost like you do not exist until christ resurrects you and you know we within christianity you know teach what the scripture says about to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, and uh, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they go a long way down the road about, oh, well, you know, even uh, the, Charles Taze Russell, who is the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, and, the, and he wrote uh, their book, which they refer to as the Bible. It's not the Bible, but they, they you know, the New World Translation that they teach from. Uh, there, when Jesus is on the cross and uh, says to the man, you know, I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise because they teach soul sleep. Uh, Charles Taze Russell rewrote that and, um, you know, adds a comma. So now uh, their version of the Bible uh, says, I tell you, I tell you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise is, is how their translation reads. You know, you got to alter the word of God in order for you know, to, to hold that teaching. So anyway, we we discover these things, and then as we're working our way through it, he says, "Wait a minute, I, I did learn that from my friend's uncle, and that guy is a Jehovah's Witness." And I said, "Well, there you go." You know, as he was sharing those things with me, it just stood out. With uh, it sounds like you're saying soul sleep, and that's not biblical. It comes from the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's insisting, I didn't learn that from Jehovah's Witnesses. So then we work through the, the biblical precept of what he's saying, discover it is soul sleep that he's thinking. And then in the end, he remembers, oh, in fact, it was from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Point in context is Paul is saying, hold fast the pattern of sound words. You know, what I have taught you is not only going to have a specific, uh, you know, reference and a specific foundation in the scripture, but there's also going to be something that comes very naturally from the Holy Spirit that you should be able to recognize as proper pattern if, if you're even just listening to it. Something's going to stand out, catch your ear, and uh, need you as a Christian to fine-tune it. So hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and in love which are in Christ Jesus that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And again, both of these things, the idea of 
don't let go of them. Hold fast and keep. Uh, you know, you've got to retain these things. A couple of references just to build that idea of holding fast and keeping. Joshua 1.8, as Joshua is about to take over the leadership of Israel, the Lord says to him, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Uh, it is uh, becoming m you know, more and more difficult to hold to God's word in our environment. Um, you know, you, you say things like, nope, um, you know, at birth, gender is assigned by nature, by God, you know, that, that you're born as a male or you're born as a female. Oh, you know, our culture freaks out about, uh, you know, you cannot assign gender if, you know, somebody wants to choose uh, later on, you know, they're contradicting to the word, the word, and not only are they doing that, but they're insisting we can't hold to the truth of God's word. So this, this statement given by Paul of hold fast, cling to these things, and then what he's saying in verse 14 about keep these things, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, to add to that further, Psalm 15, verses 1 through 5, you know, a psalm of David begins by saying, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And then you get down to verse 4. It says, in whose eyes a vile, describing uh, you know, who can dwell in his tabernacle, who can dwell in his holy hill. The description continues in verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. And here's what I wanted to bring up. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You know, if, if we have said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe in his word, I hold to the doctrine of the scripture, then as the world changes around us and as the world outlaws the things that we're saying and teaching, and if, if you're thinking like, uh, oh, it, it hasn't come to that or it won't come to that, you, you really need to research what's going on legally regarding hate speech and, and the fact that, you know, the things we hold to, the tenets we hold to in the scripture and what we teach is more and more every day uh, they're mandating what we can say and what we can't say and what we can teach and what we can't teach. And, uh, you know, we've got sort of uh, a precursory timeline uh, ahead of us, behind us, however you want to look, uh, you know, the way that England and Europe have gone historically is where we end up. You know, they, you know, they progress, you know, the progressive era. They progress into certain legal positions and stances and thought process, and ultimately we end up there. Uh, you know, as Europe and particularly England goes, so doesn't Canada. And and then America. If you look at things, we, we really don't have 10 years right now before 
like Canada, like England, they're going to be saying it's against the law to say homosexuality is a sin or to say homosexuality is wrong. We're going to have to, you know, hold fast and keep uh, the doctrine and the pattern of sound words that have been given. And it's going to be very, very challenging. Uh, the same way it was for Paul and Timothy, who, you know, at, at this point, Paul is going to pay for his preaching uh, with his life. So be prepared for the struggle and the persecution and the challenges that are ahead. Continuing, uh, verse 15, this you know, that, uh, that all those in Asia, and that would be today what is modern-day Turkey, the Roman Empire, uh, referred to the region, mostly Turkey, but some of the surrounding region, as Asia Minor. And so when uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and he refers to Asia, he's, he's talking about what today is you know, the region of Turkey. So this you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me. Now, that is a little bit of exaggeration. Uh, Paul's going to talk here in uh, just a moment about Onesiphorus, who is, you know, helping serve with him. There are still people around him uh, who are serving the Lord. It's, it's not, he's not lying or even trying to lie. It's the idea that uh, those who previously were, you know, there in the beginning in such a, a vital part of uh, what Paul was doing and the mission's work and what was going on, they have all, that original crowd is all gone. They, they've all departed. So this you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Those are you know two good uh, names you can keep in mind for you know future kids if you ever you know are wondering you know what to name your son or daughter you could you know keep those in mind They'd be unique at school probably come up with some you know interesting nicknames to go along with those but uh, these stereotypical names of the time and the era that is there uh, known names to Timothy that uh, were part of the work uh, there in Asia Minor who have abandoned Paul and left him in these circumstances. Verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. Uh, interesting name. Um, it means, by definition, help bringer, which he is going to prove as he uh, goes on that he is fulfilling the definition of his name. He's very helpful to Paul and, and what it is that he's uh, going through. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain, his imprisonment. He speaks of the chain there. You know, it might have been more than one chain. It's the idea of my imprisonment and uh, how I am in bondage. So, uh, you know, Onesiphorus, while it says he's not ashamed, and we think, okay, you know, good for him. It's the idea that uh, part of the reason that people have left is out of fear. If Paul ends up in chains and he's now 
going to be executed, then the people that were around him are taking that into consideration and saying to themselves, do I really want to hang around here and, and do the same sort of ministry Paul was doing if ultimately I'm going to end up in prison and potentially be executed myself? Uh, the reason Paul is putting uh, this admiration on Onesiphorus is because those things are real threats, and Onesiphorus is faithful to follow the Lord regardless of what it might cost him. You know, much like I read from Psalm 15, where he says, you know, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change, meaning he doesn't change his commitment. And Onesiphorus is one of those. He stayed with him. In verse 17, he goes further by saying, But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Um, the Romans were unconcerned about uh, making sure anyone had the information that they felt was necessary, you know. Your uncle gets sent to jail. They don't like send out notification to all the other jails and all of the other law enforcement agencies to make sure everyone knows where your uncle is. <laughs> so if you, you know, your uncle goes missing, you know, I'm just making this up as we go along, and, and uh, you know, you start looking for him, and then you find, oh, he got arrested, and you go to the local garrison and say, hey, here, my uncle got arrested and he's in prison, they're just going to look at you and say, we don't know anything about that. You know, they, they don't make sure that the information is shared. So even in Rome, many garrisons, many prisons, many prison cells, you know, little local jails uh, all over. So when Onesiphorus comes into Rome and he knows Paul is in jail, he has to go uh, from location to location until, you know, maybe he finds a guard that had previously been assigned somewhere else who has information and he has to follow that line himself. Keeping in mind that, you know, Paul's a Roman prisoner and you start asking about this, you know, guy who's a Roman prisoner, you're one more time running the risk of being imprisoned yourself. You know, being associated with this is dangerous. It could it could cost you in uh, the circumstances. So, you know, Onesiphorus is uh, you know serious on that level of he's he's seeking out Paul and he wants to take care of him and he uh, goes through the process of finding him, even though it potentially uh, could have cost him very dearly. So it says, "The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy." from the Lord in that day and know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So, you know, former friend from Ephesus comes to Rome looking for Paul and, and consider how the wording is. He looked for me earnestly, zealously, found me. You know, the thing that Paul wants him to find is the mercy of God. You know, on the day that he stands in front of the Lord, uh, you know, and uh, experiences judgment, Paul is saying, I pray to God that you know he will find God's mercy and reward for being such a diligent servant 
who was willing to risk um, his own safety in order to minister to Paul. So, uh, you know, in in contrast to everyone who's left, left, Onesiphorus is one who is exemplary in staying and caring for the needs of Paul. Second Timothy chapter two, <clears throat> beginning at verse one. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now. Historically, Timothy is often uh, referred to, they even assign the title to him as Timid Timothy. And we hear Paul encouraging him of be strong and, you know, don't be afraid. And we, we uh, you know, uh, hear Paul uh, admonishing him, don't let anyone despise you. So, you know, they lump these things together and come up with the idea that uh, Timothy is weak, he's timid, he needs this constant encouragement. And honestly, uh, from what we're able to see in the Scripture, um, he's your average Christian and your average pastor. Uh, It's the fact that the circumstances around him are this severe, that, that the threat against his life and the threat against his freedom are uh, that intimidating that Paul has to say, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You have a few um, supportive verses that are uh, significant to this situation. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 and 30 you know, most of us from are familiar with where it says uh, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Verse 31, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. We need God's strength. In, you know, in and of ourselves, we're weak. Uh, you know, the the sinfulness, the untrustworthiness, the unpredictability of the human flesh, the human mind, our own personalities. Uh, We need God's strength uh, to rely upon. We need him in order to continue. So this encouragement from Paul, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You guys, you know, even the couple of us in this room, the days that are ahead of us, it is going to be harder and harder all the time to say that you're a Christian and to live by these things. Um, so, you know, right now, even though we can sort of see these things coming, it's not all that intimidating in our culture to be a Christian. Um, you know, I don't know if you noticed uh, California was actually trying to, uh, this past week, trying to put a thing in place uh, regarding uh, the armed services that um, uh, Christianity uh, would be labeled as a, a hate crime organization and uh, therefore restricted and maybe even banned uh, uh, from being promoted and uh, used within the armed services. And uh, luckily, uh, you know, enough concern was raised over that and the politicians that got involved were wise enough that, you know, they struck that down, you know, 
imagine what would have happened if uh, someone had, uh, you know, put something forward like that regarding Islam. You know, the, the world would have lost its mind if, he, if someone even suggested that uh, Islam should be even considered for restriction in that way. Yet, you know, made it quite a way, you know, quite a long ways through the process of considering whether they were going to make changes in, in the military regarding Christianity because it teaches against, uh, you know, all these things. No, nobody even questioned. I mean, Islam is even more diametrically opposed to homosexuality, transgenderism, all these things, and, and yet nobody brings those things up. So we're, we're you know, more and more facing the uh, restrictions and the hatred and uh, the uh, need for strength, as Paul is giving Timothy here, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Um, you know, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, uh, you know, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. This This idea of being strong in his grace is something that's very central to Paul, you know, he he is, uh, you know, abused by the church and uh, spoken ill of by the church at Corinth, and you know, called into question regarding uh, his strength, his position as, you know, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and and you know, his illness comes into play. He he preaches and teaches and holds to grace in a way that's, um, you know, uh, it eclipses uh, any of the other epistles in, in how uh, those men wrote and talked about it. You know, I think of, uh, you know, how in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12 there where he's talking about his illness and how he had prayed that God would remove uh, that thorn in the flesh from him. And, um, you know, his sweat bands uh, have been taken to the homes of people that are sick and laid upon them, and they've been made well uh, just from having articles of clothing, his apron being taken and put on people that were sick, and they're made well. And, you know, here's Paul with this physical malady, uh, apparently, and he's praying that God would heal him. And it seems as though he's praying it in such a way that he expects it. That, that, I mean, good grief, if he can pray for other people and they're made well, if he can you know, have these articles of clothing taken to people and they're made well, surely he can pray and he'd be made well. And, um, you know, when we hear there that he's prayed three times, it's almost like uh, it's being described like, I took the time aside to pray and fast, you know, those he described, to, you know, thinking that surely the Lord would heal me, and what is a year? My grace is sufficient for you. So Paul isn't saying you know, to Timothy, you've got to be strong in the grace of the Lord in an empty sort of hollow uh, you know, seminary teaching kind of way. He's a guy who's lived it out, and uh, he understands what it's going to take to uh, have that working in his life, he there at that end of that passage in Second Corinthians, chapter twelve, um, you know he says it's when I'm weak that I am strong. 
that that when we can understand, you know, I'm trying for all I'm worth. I want to see victory in my life. I want to see healing. I want to see whatever it is. And, and those things are still a struggle for us that we have to rely upon the Lord and his grace that then we begin to understand that's where my strength is. It's, it's in the fact that I can't do these things. Christ can, and I have to rely upon him completely. And that's what he's trying to teach this young pastor is, you know, you're going to be strong in the grace of God. That message isn't, you know, come on, Timothy, you, you know, you just got to grit your teeth and sort of growl. And, uh, you know, when you then you'll be strong, be strong. It's not that sort of message that he's given this young pastor. He's talking about being strong in the fact that you're weak and Christ is going to accomplish these things through his grace. Verse 2, and these things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This statement, I think, is significantly important. Um, you know, basically, every sermon I've ever preached is stolen from somebody else. I mean, you know, the idea that it isn't, I think, is, is arrogant. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, I'm a unique preacher. I find special insights nobody else does. And I, you know, every idea that we have that we're teaching comes from the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit provided us the foundation of the thing that we need to then hand on. We need to be taught by sound doctrine and men of sound doctrine so that we can then hand it on. I, I think that, uh, you know, for us to develop that mentality, well, oh, you know, Chuck Smith, I mean, you got, you know, Charles Stanley, you've got, uh, you know, Billy Graham, you know, those guys were profound teachers. Learn from them and, and teach the things you've been taught. We, we've all taken it from somebody else. We've all taken it from the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not ours in origin. It comes from God. And, and when we can stick to that, when we can grasp that idea that, you know, the word of God is, is the source of, of the things that need to be taught, then there's a freedom in being able to take, you know, oh, that's a good message, that's a good concept, make it your own, and then hand it on to somebody else. Uh, you know, the, the strength that we find in these paths, how many times have we opened up, you know, Oswald Chambers and read a devotional and, and you know, walked away thinking, okay, that's going to sustain me for, you know, the struggle I'm presently in, and then you turn around and there's somebody else in the same or a similar struggle, and you're able to hand that on to them. This concept, I, I, I think it's really dangerous, and I think that people end up in trouble when when they approach it like, I've got to be unique, I've got to... So, so you, you end up... If you're trying to find things no one else has taught, then you end up teaching things that no one else has taught. You, you can end up being a false teacher out of pride. Submitting to the fact that I need to be taught and the things I learn, I'm going to hand those on to other people. The faithful sayings, the faithful teachings uh, are good. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This, this is you know, a message that 
its origin is in God. And, uh, you know, maybe somebody is going to find a clever way to reword it or illustrate it or bring it into a modern understanding. But in the end, you know, we have one message. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what we need to teach and preach to the world around us. Uh, verse 3, there are a few different sections uh, to this part where he says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier. Notice the word must. Okay, so uh, it, it, it implies that uh, you know these next few parts are necessity for the believer. We don't get to skip any of these things. This isn't just written to to Timothy as a pastor. Uh, you know, this this is written to believers uh, in order for us to check the validity of our faith. Um, you know, you think about the way uh, they have certain security measures built into, like, you know, our dollar bills now. Your dollar bill, in order to be proven to be authentic, must have certain things to it, you know. If I go get out some paper and my, you know, pens and crayons and, you know, draw you up a dollar bill uh, in order for, you know, some guy, here's a $10,000 bill. You've done all this work on my house and here you go. You know, I hand you this thing I've created. You can say there's a whole bunch of stuff this does not have that proves this is not authentic. And here, this is part of what Paul is saying to Timothy. You, you therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. To begin with, you're going to have hardship. Um, there, there's a soft message that's being preached and taught in Christianity right now, where people are being encouraged to look for ways to be accepted by the unbelieving world you know you, you got to have your music just super emotional you got to have you know your church has to be super attractive uh you know you got to you know design everything for the hipster in, in order to be accepted by the world and 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 therein you won't have any hardship you won't have any persecution you won't have any difficulties we're not called to that as believers, we are going to endure hardship. You know, it, it is not easy to be a Christian. I think about the, the people who, uh, you know, like Paul is saying, you know, the hardship came and everyone left. You know, I, I had all of these people that were working in the ministry and, you know, they all, you know, forsook me, Paul is saying. There are so many people inside the faith that as soon as, the struggle, as soon as the difficulty hits, they're done. They, they don't want anything to do with the hardship of being a good soldier. And notice there in verse 3 that he says you have to endure hardship as a good soldier. Right? He doesn't say, you know, as a soldier, you know, getting shot at, you know, having warfare occur around you, you know, finding a place to crawl in a hole or run from the battlefield. He's, he's not saying that. If you're a believer, then you must endure the hardship as a good soldier. 
not as just a soldier, but as a good one. It's, you know, someone who would be recognized and awarded. That's the life of a believer. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You know, the idea of, you know, you, you're a soldier, you've been through boot camp, you're enlisted, you've been assigned, you've been stationed somewhere, and, uh, you know, you, you decide, oh, I want to take the family on vacation. So you just load up the car and you drive away. If you don't have time off, they're going to say you're AWOL. You kind of, you know, you don't just get to say, "Oh, this is what I wanted to do with my family," you know. Especially, you know, during warfare, if if this country has declared war and you have been assigned to that, you don't get to just leave and forsake what you've been called into. So this idea of must endure the hardship as a good soldier that means there are certain considerations you don't get to choose. You know, consider, you know, that as a soldier, there's a whole bunch of things that you're going to lose by becoming a soldier. You know, you go into boot camp, you're going to lose your hair, you're going to lose your clothes, you're going to lose, you know, your diet. You know, they're going to tell you what to eat, they're going to tell you where to be, they're going to tell you how to behave. You, you don't get to make those choices for yourself anymore. And so it is with the Lord. There's a commitment to him that requires that service. So many people, you know, oh, I, I can't uh, work. I've got this going on. I can't be engaged in ministry. I've got that going on. They, they, they have so many other things that they allow to consume their thoughts, their mind, their behavior, and they compromise in their relationship and their commitment to the Lord. Paul is saying, Timothy, not for you. You know, if you're going to serve the Lord, if you're going to follow through with what he's called you to, then you must endure these things like someone who's been commissioned. We do have a commander. Uh, you know, Jesus Christ is the Lord over the hosts of heaven. You know, thinking of uh, Joshua chapter 5 where uh, Joshua actually has an encounter with the Lord there. And, uh, you know, the, the Lord actually... Uh, introduces himself as the commander of the hosts of heaven and uh, you know Joshua has to realize I'm you know submitted to this one who is uh, you know uh, about to conquer Jericho at that point is what he was experiencing in verse uh, 5 it continues we're in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 and if anyone uh, and also if anyone competes in ath uh, in athletics he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You know, thinking about this tonight, um, uh, how many times have we been watching football games? And, um, you know, here comes the play, and the quarterback fades back and just bombs one down the field, and you just can't believe how far he's thrown it, and somebody reaches up and grabs that thing into the air, and you know, touchdown or, or even just completed pass, you know, the Hail Mary that went, you know, ridiculous amount of yards. And, you know, everybody's excited for the play except for the fact that, you know, the ref has 
thrown a flag on the field. And now everybody's, you know, waiting for what is the decision on that. And you, you find that, uh, you know, the, the receiver, you know, did something that disqualifies the play. You know, that, that he was, you know, uh, creating a, a play illegally, that he was forcing another player off of him, that he was, you know, pushing a player down in order to make that catch. You have to compete according to the rules. You know, we as Christians, you know, Timothy here receiving from Paul, you can't just go at the faith any way that you want to. And and listen, there are, you know, if you think that that illustration is lame, there are a lot of people within, you know, Christianity who think that they have, uh, you know, special considerations. So yes, yes, this is a sin uh, defined in the scripture, but that really only applies to a bunch of other people. That you know, I've got special arrangements with God. You know, it's okay for me uh, to have sex outside marriage. You know, my my relationship. We love one another. We're in. We're already married in spirit. Not according to the Scripture. Not according to the Lord. You know, there are very specific rules that the Lord has laid down. There's sin. There are things that He has defined that he alone has the right to define our, our culture. And, and, I, and I do mean the Christian culture is very much engaged in this right now. You know, we have, you know, worship leaders who all of Christianity is looking up to who, you know, find themselves in very public settings where the whole world is watching, being asked, you know, is, is homosexuality uh, you know, acceptable, and and they're saying things like, I I don't really know, you know, I, I you know when I study the scripture, I'm not able to find anything that says that, you know, you almost want to ask like, do you have a Bible? Do you need a Bible? You know, the Word of God clearly states the rules by which we're qualified or disqualified, which we're in the game or we're out of the game. So, you know, this second illustration, again, like the soldier, the idea is in the completion. You know, the, the soldier might start out and begin, but he has to continue in obedience to his commander, to the one who's enlisted him. Here, the athlete has to continue in obedience to the rules that are, uh, you know, given to him. You know, this third illustration in verse 6, the hardworking farmer must uh, must be first to partake of the crops. Now, if it sounds a little different, follow a couple things. You know, the hardship spoken of in verse 3 for the soldier, you know, when you think farmer, right, you know, like fishermen, <laughs> you know, they're up very early. You don't, you don't, rarely, rarely are you going to read, read the phrase, you know, the lazy farmer. It's hard work is part of farming. You, you know, that, that it's sort of synonymous with, you know, early to bed, early to rise. If you're going to be a farmer, there, there are clearly defined ways and methods that are associated with farming. So this hard working farmer must be be first to partake of the crops. So if we do the spiritual application to Christian or minister, then hard work is part of it. 
You're not going to find, you know, laziness as being part of what it means to be in the ministry. You know, secondly, first partaker. Um, so the hardworking farmer doesn't get to go through the process of plant, you know, tilling the soil and planting the soil and then packing up and leaving town. There's the weeding that goes through the whole process and then the harvest. If nothing else, there's at least the harvest that must be done in order to be a partaker in it. So soldier has to continue through the warfare. Athlete has to, you know, finish according to the rules. Farmer has to go all the way to harvest in order for these illustrations to work. You know, think about the fact that Paul has said there are guys that you know, Timothy, who started out and they've left. They've forsaken me. They've forsaken the ministry. They're no longer part of it. The only way that there's reward in the process is in the completion. It's in the fulfillment of these things. In verse 7, consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. You know, so that you know the, the the fact that Paul is saying in these three illustrations, it's in the completion, Timothy. You know, you've started out, you're zealous, you're committed, but you're gonna have to rely upon the strength of God's grace, and you're gonna have to continue through these things to the point of completion in order uh to receive the reward and experience the Lord's blessing in that. So, you know, with all of that. Consider what I'm saying and follow the, uh, you know, the understanding that the Holy Spirit provides. Uh, verse 8, uh, remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Uh, so uh, Paul isn't saying that his gospel is unique. What he's saying is, you know, what, what I taught you, what you're going to take and then, you know, deliver to other faithful men and they're going to teach. It's, it's, the, it's the one and only gospel and it pertains to the resurrection of Jesus Christ for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, verse 9 says, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Don't, um, you know how to put it, don't be intimidated by the fact that I'm in chains and I'm about to be executed. The same thing might be in your path. You know, you know drag that up to where we are here this evening, listening to this Bible study. The shift that's happening in the world around us, the same thing might be in store for each one of us. That chains, imprisonment, punishment, possibly even execution. It's, it's interesting, historically, that once a shift be, you know, begins against particularly Christianity, the changes that come happen very rapidly. You know, plug along for years and years and years, but once a hatred and an animosity begins and the tides begin to change, 
stuff happens very rapidly. You know, seemingly in a short period of time. Consider the nation of Israel and God's warning them and warning them and warning them and warning them and then their captivity comes. All, all at once, they're experiencing that rapid succession of changes that bring about their imprisonment and their executions and their punishments. You know, so it is that Paul is saying to Timothy, you know, you should not look at what I'm doing and then look at your own circumstance and think, I need to get out of this, you know, ministry and out of this path that I've chosen in life because look where it led Paul. And if I stay on this road, I'm going to end up in the same thing. Why? Listen to what he's saying, right? My message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if they execute me, resurrection is what's in store for me. If they execute you, then resurrection is what is in store for you. Resurrection is the center of their message. And, and Paul is saying to Timothy, you cannot let the current circumstances of the world intimidate you to the point where you change your course. Like the good soldier, you've got to go to completion. Like the athlete, you've got to cross the finish line. Like the farmer, you've got to bring in the harvest and consume this. Resurrection is our message. There is one gospel message. It is resurrection. So, so you know, he's, he's condemning those people who have fled away from the ministry and fled away from the faith, saying, you know, essentially what he's saying is, did they, have, did they truly believe in the resurrection? Because if they allowed these circumstances to intimidate them to the point where they bailed on their faith, then you really got to question yourself about, is that really what you believe? Do you really believe the gospel message, which is the power of Jesus Christ to conquer death, to, to give you life beyond that? So, you know, consider what he's saying here. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You know, Paul is saying you know, if, if because Jesus Christ provides resurrection, I'm willing to go all the way to death because I understand what it provides everyone that I'm ministering to. You know, if I truly believe in resurrection, then it does not matter what level of suffering I'm going to go through. You're, you know, think about it. The unbeliever is destined for hell. They're going to experience death, and they're going to be separated from God for eternity. Paul is saying it's worth it to me to go the full distance into execution if my suffering and all of that difficulty provides uh, salvation for some people. It's a remarkable thing that he's presenting here for us, both you know, in the particulars of his own conduct, but also conceptually for us to embrace the idea that, you know, no matter how great the suffering, uh, we need to continue to preach this message in order that some would be saved. So in verse 11, he goes on to say, this is a faithful saying, for we, for we died with him, we shall also live with him. Now, you know, this is two-part, right? Because he is specifically talking about 
his own execution, but he's also talking about that uh, dying to ourselves now, dying to ourselves daily. You think about Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 9 at verse 23, where he says, you know, if anyone wants to follow me, he's going to have to take up his cross and follow me daily. So, so this execution Paul is going through, spiritually, we should be going through day to day, dying to ourselves in order that we would live that resurrected life. You know, this past Sunday, uh, we, we studied Romans chapter 6, where it dwells so much, uh, Paul saying, you know, what then shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died, uh, uh, how shall we who died to sin live any longer? In it, you know, or do you not know as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, that just as Christ Jesus was raised by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in a newness of life. There is a resurrection now. For there is there is the resurrection that will occur for us, even if we were to sacrifice our lives like Paul. You know, the laws change, the hatred grows, the persecution intensifies. And now we have to face being executed for our faith. Okay, there's that, death, burial, and resurrection. But there's a resurrection now that needs to be lived out by the believer. And, and if, if Paul isn't willing to be executed for his faith literally, then the question he's posing is, is there a spiritual death and burial with Jesus Christ that results in resurrection now. You know, his challenge to Timothy is, if you're not willing to follow me into literal execution, then the people who are trying to follow you are not going to follow you in spiritual death right now and spiritual resurrection right now. It, it takes... People need to see this level of commitment in us, that, that we they understand from our zeal, from our conversations, from our conduct, that we are willing to die. We are willing to die for our faith. Because if we're not willing to die for our faith in the here and now, then are we living for Christ here and now? This this you know mandate the Lord has put out for us is, is a necessity of dying to ourselves and living for Christ right now. Uh, continuing in verse 12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. You know, that there that is a, a big challenge he just put forward. Th think about this, right? Jesus said elsewhere, Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, uh, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. Think about Peter, right? Jesus, you know, Peter's saying, I'll die at your side. Jesus is saying, you're going to deny me uh, three times before the rooster crows. And Peter is convinced that's not going to happen. The level of heartbreak and shame that comes to him, uh, brings him to his knees. He's overwhelmed with his failure. Peter's literal denial is the same level of denial we see in everyone that ran away from Jesus that night. 
Jesus is being arrested, and all of them scatter. They all run away. You know, Peter is actually bold enough to go into where Jesus is being tried. And he runs away emotionally when he's questioned about whether he's a follower of Jesus Christ. The, the denial of Jesus Christ uh, can be verbal or just through our behavior. It's, it's a very heartbreaking thing to fail and to shrink away from your commitment to Christ and realize that in the process you've denied him. That, that by giving in to the appetites of your flesh, by not enduring, you've denied Jesus Christ. That, that resurrection into a newness of life uh, has you know, been lost on us. The beautiful thing in that failure is what he says uh, right there at the very end, where we'll end for this evening. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. I think every single one of us is going to come to that point where our commitment is challenged so much that we fail. I think, I think every one of us is, is going to be challenged at some point in our life where there's a conversation going on and somebody's mocking our faith. They don't realize we're a Christian and they're saying something and we have it in our arm. I should say something right now. And we don't. We, we thereby are denying Christ. We're, we are failing in the moment. If, if you found yourself like Peter, right? Think about that last denial. Peter's in the process of saying, you know, I do not know the man. And the scripture records that Jesus was being brought out at that moment and Peter makes eye contact with him. That failure in that moment reduced Peter to ashes. The grace of Jesus Christ was at the end of John where Peter's fishing and Jesus is on the shore cooking breakfast and Peter jumps out of the boat and swims ashore and they eat breakfast together and Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter basically can't ever answer him. You know, it's, it's worded differently in our English Bible, but, you know, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter says, well, we're friends. Jesus asks him a second time, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter answers, well, we're friends. And then Jesus says, well, are we actually friends? And Peter says, well, I guess you know better than I do, is, is essentially how that conversation went. And each time Jesus says, then feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, which is, you know, if we were to do that in modern terminologies, you could translate that to say, Jesus saying, are, are we are, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter saying, you know, I think we're friends. Do you love me unconditionally? I think we're friends. Are we actually friends? Uh, well, only you know whether we're friends or not, Lord. And Jesus saying each time, then be a pastor. Be my minister, is what he said. Feed my sheep, is what he's saying each time. It's important for us to understand that you're going to find the end of yourself. And 
you need to face the reality of whatever your failure was and then understand what Paul is saying about being strong in the grace of God. Because it's, it's the grace of God that allows us to be called Christians. It's the grace of God that allows us to be called children of God. So understand his graciousness in the process. You know, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Well, we can't deny himself, right, because his Holy Spirit is in us. He has caused us to be children and caused us to be born again. So he can't deny the fact that we belong to him. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he's, if he's going to forgive Peter, then he's going to forgive us. Hear what I'm saying. There are those who departed from the faith completely. There are those who departed from ministry completely. Paul is saying to Timothy, don't be like them. You're going to find your weaknesses. You're going to find the end of yourself. You're going to find that in some way, big or small, you've denied Jesus Christ. In the end, the faithfulness is all on the part of Jesus Christ to save us. Continue on. Even though, you know, how discouraging for, you know, Paul, for Timothy to, to come to the place where they realize, I'm a failure. I'm, I'm, I'm weak. I, I'm, I'm not as committed as I should be. That, that can be so discouraging that you'd start thinking like, I should just throw in the towel like those other guys did. You don't throw in the towel. You continue on. You know, though the warfare is going on, you stay on the battlefield. You know, though you threw the pass and, uh, you know, it was disqualified, well, you get back in the game and you throw the next pass. You know, you, you, you know you're a farmer and you've planted and you're you know, looking for the harvest and, you know, there's been some storm and, you know, part of your crop is destroyed. You, you, you till again and you plant again and you wait for harvest again. He's contrasting the fact that these people quit. You don't get to quit. You have to stay the course and see things through to their finish. So we'll end with uh, verse 13 right there and pick up with uh, verse 14 next week.